Hello and welcome to the podcast of Tech.eu. I am your host, Robin Wouters. I'm the founder of Tech.eu and filling in for the time being for Andrew Degler from our team, who is taking a break due to family reasons, more specifically family extension reasons. Today, we are going to quickly discuss a couple of major stories that hit the newswires in the past week. Every Friday afternoon, as you may know, I publish the 10 biggest European tech news items for the week, which is always quite challenging to curate and select. I usually have to eliminate about five to eight stories I lined up during the week. Today, I'm making it even more difficult for myself by selecting even less to talk about on this podcast. Later in this episode, you can also hear my interview with Moray Wright. He's the CEO of Parkwalk, an investment firm that invests in UK-based technology companies. More on that later. First, let's talk about some of the big news in European tech from last week. The European Commission announced on Tuesday that it's launching two antitrust investigations into Apple's App Store rules and the Apple Pay platform. The Commission said it will assess whether Apple's rules for app developers on the distribution of apps via the App Store are actually in breach of the EU's competition rules. While companies can place their apps on the App Store at no cost, Apple charges companies 30% for in-app purchases and 30% on subscriptions for the first year, then 15% thereafter. Spotify, which of course competes directly with Apple Music, feels that this is unfair and filed a formal complaint in March 2019. Kobo, an e-reader company that competes with Apple Books, has also filed a complaint. In other major news, Germany's Wirecard, which once promised to shake up the world of payments, saw its stock collapse and its CEO resign after 1.9 billion euros, or about a quarter of its balance sheet, went missing. That was a bit of a bombshell for Germany's establishment, especially after it defended Wirecard from media such as uh, FT, which uh, you know investigated this story for, for a long time, but also from critical investors who have long warned of accounting irregularities. This is an ongoing story that will be discussed in more detail this in the coming weeks, I'm sure. So stay tuned for more chatter about the fallout of Wirecard. I also wanted to highlight two interesting acquisitions made by some well-known American tech giants. First of all, Facebook has acquired Swedish mapping startup Mapillary. CEO Jan-Erik Solom didn't give any financial details about the acquisition in the blog post announcing the deal, but noted that things would not change for Mapillary users, at least not in the short term. In case you haven't heard of Mapillary, it solicits photo uploads from regular folks in order to build out a highly detailed street-level map of the world. It's similar in that sense to what Google Maps does, but you can upload your own photos instead of having to wait for a Google van to drive around your neighborhood. Mapillary's blog post indicated that the data would remain open and free for use, both commercially and non-commercially, but let's wait and see about that. Secondly, the payments company Square has acquired a Spanish peer-to-peer -peer payments app called Verse that allows users to send money to friends and family for free. Terms of the deals were also not disclosed. Uh, Square said Verse will join its cash app division, which also allows users to transfer money to one another. And then there were some notable funding deals, such as Sweden-based video games developer Stillfront raising just over 113 million euros so it can, quote, act swiftly on potential future acquisitions and growth opportunities, unquote. Berlin's CMS software scale-up Contentful, in the meantime, raised $80 million in Series E funding, while UK-based digital bank Monzo confirmed a fresh-run funding round of £60 million from existing investors, albeit accompanied with a significant cut to its valuation. And now let's move on to my interview with Maury Wright. He's the CEO of Parkwalk Advisors. It's an investment firm that has invested in a host of early stage tech startups in the UK with plans to invest in a whole lot more. Interestingly, it manages funds in conjunction with the universities of Oxford, Cambridge and Bristol, and recently also the new innovation fund from Imperial College London. 
which will back early stage spin-out startups funded by students or staff or with an R&D link to the institution. Enjoy. Hey, this is uh, Robin from Tech.eu, and I'm joined here remotely, of course, by Moray Wright, who is the CEO of a UK-based uh, fund company called Parkwalk. Uh, Moray, thank you uh, for joining us and welcome to the show. Uh, can you briefly elaborate on who you are and what you do? Yeah. Hi, Robin, and thanks very much for your time. Uh, yeah, as Robin said, um, I'm CEO of Parkwalk, which is a specialist uh, VC fund in, based in London in the UK. Uh, we invest in university spin-out companies, so um, we're sort of backing some of the uh, innovation that comes out of British universities. Uh, we were set up in 2009, uh, so we've been investing for just over 10 years. Uh, we've got about 300 million of assets under management. We've invested in about 125 companies over the years. Uh, we've had nearly 30 exits, so a portfolio now of around about 95 to 100 companies. Uh, we run some early stage funds with the universities of Oxford, Cambridge, Bristol, and recently Imperial College. Um, and uh, we invest across all different sectors. So uh, we're trying to invest in things that are, that are providing solutions to real world challenges. Uh, so we've invested in companies ranging from life sciences, AI, quantum, advanced materials, genomics, clean tech, all sorts of innovation. That's already uh, quite a track record, I would say, in, uh, in just over a decade. Um, when the fund was launched, when it was announced, like what was the thinking behind it? Was there such a gap in the market that you thought like, you know, there's room for this? Exactly. Um, we set up in 2009, uh, when, uh, after, which was just after the last crisis, and uh, there, there was quite a lack of funding around for early stage companies at that point. We thought a couple of things. We thought so, some of the solutions that these companies would provide would be um, meaningful and valuable, but also uh, that we also believed that valuations would be, um, well, valuations were low at that time because there was not much money around. The UK had had quite a few very large um, spin-out successes, uh, such as there's a company called Alexa, which is the sort of core technology behind Illumina, but uh, behind the Illumina gene sequencing uh, device. And we wanted to back the next generation of those successes. And, and our thesis was that UK produces sort of world-class R&D. You know, in this sort of last global report, uh, the UK had about 16% of the world's most highly cited research papers coming out of our universities. But there were very limited pots of capital to actually fund and back those opportunities. So we, we thought that, um, that those companies themselves with the patent protection and the freedom to operate that they had would have the opportunity to uh, succeed internationally and be valued internationally as well. Yeah, uh, th this is the sort of thing that comes up in a lot of conversations I have when we talk about the European tech ecosystems, so even outside of the UK, I think that's the case, that we have a lot of talent, we have a lot of um, great research being done by, you know, academic institutions, research centers, etc. But it's still quite difficult and quite slow to get that you know, technology transfer, as they call it, these really groundbreaking technologies into sort of a, a market fit commercial um, activity that can sort of turn into to scaling business. So, so I think that's one of the problems that Europe grapples with. Would you agree with that uh, statement? Yeah, I would. I would. And, and that's partly, obviously, because the, the US is such a large single market. You, you know, Europe, between us all, is a, is a bigger market uh, potentially, but we are more diverse and there are different rules and there are different ways of selling your product and, and, and getting to market in each of those different nations at the moment, which which is a lot harder. So it's, it's partly the sort of end product takes longer, in my opinion, generally to, to sell in, in Europe, but it's also, of course, the funding. And there's an, a very efficient funding ecosystem in the US with you know, investors at different stages of, of companies' development. You know, you've, you've got certain people who, can, who invest in 
in early stages, people who can sort of take companies through the sort of Series A and B, and then you've got the, the later stage investors who've got very deep pockets who can help in the in in the bigger funding rounds. Whereas here here in, in Europe, yeah, you know, I'm talking mostly from UK experience, but I think it's pretty common across Europe that there there is a dearth of funding. Um, that there's reasonable amount of money around in in our experience at the, or at least there was before the coronavirus at the um sort of seed and series a uh, funding rounds but but there the, there is a definitely a value of death at the, at the sort of b b plus c round and you know what we tend to see quite commonly is the companies that appear to be succeeding quite well at that stage tend to when it comes to that series c funding round that the, the a lot of the opportunities for money for them at that stage come from international corporations and quite often lends, leads to an acquisition. And quite often that leads to sort of disappointment for the host country, wherever that was developed, because often that technology is then taken abroad and, and the employment and the taxes and all of the other benefits go to the go to the acquiring country, not the, yeah. not, not the inventing country. Speaking of which, is the government in any way, the UK government in any way a backer of uh, your fund or do, do your LPs uh, come from the private sector only? Yeah, private sector only at the moment. I mean, obviously, we're, we're like most funds, we're in discussions with government who, you know, who are obviously trying to do quite a lot to help uh, keep the ecosystem going you know, in the current environment. Yeah. Uh, so this whole situation you've described um, so well right now, has that changed a lot over the last Let's say from 2009 to 2019, we'll leave out 2020 for uh, for a bit for obvious reasons. But yeah, yeah, I think it's got it has got a lot better. You know, the, the, in many many ways. Um, you know, right actually from the very start. In, in, again, in my opinion, yeah, you know, the tech transfer departments at the universities have got a lot better over 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 the last sort of 10 years. Yeah, you know, because they've got a lot more sort of commercial experience and knowledge, and uh, they make the investors' job quite a lot easier. That you know, they're, they're working up the companies in in a very investor friendly way. You know, uh, helping a lot with the um, you know patent searches, freedom to operate, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They've got sort of decent lawyers and accountants in. House that helps sort of set the companies up with you know uh, decent shells agreements and, and so on articles and so on and so forth and then they also have got you know they've brought in very good external sort of entrepreneurs in residence stroke mentors stroke you know, you know decent management people who who can come from all sorts of sectors of industry you know but I think you know we're seeing a lot of people perhaps retire from big companies at 55 nowadays you know where, where they've perhaps got a little bit of money and a bit more sort of comfortable and secure in in their in you know in their personal lives and, and want to try and give a bit back and and, and come and help work for some of these small startup companies and help them interact with bigger companies. So the whole ecosystem has got a lot better, I think. Um, and, you know, and the funding, of course, has got a lot better as well with several more funds. You know, just here in the UK in the last sort of 10 years, we've had uh, other specialist funds set up to invest in in university spin-outs such as Cambridge Innovation Capital, sort of investing in the tech cluster around Cambridge, Oxford Science Innovations, obviously around Oxford. And of course, our parent company um, has been around for nearly 20 years, which is IP Group, which is a FTSE 250 company, listed company that specializes in um, investing in university spin-outs. They, they, they've got operations here in the UK and uh, in the States and Australia. Um, so you've men mentioned uh, a few times already, so you work with universities like uh, the, the one from Oxford and Cambridge and Imperial College in London. How does that work in practice, though? Do you manage their funds completely or do you help them manage? Like, How, how does it work in practice? Yeah, so it's, in practice, we, 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 we run these sort of seed early stage enterprise investment scheme funds in conjunction with each of those universities. So we, we generally, it raises money from mostly alumni and supporters and friends of the university. I mean, they're open to anyone. We're trying to democratize uh, investing in, in university spin-outs 
is not sort of an exclusive club, but we, we basically, with each of the universities, we raise one fund per year, which uh, raises you know, a smallish amount of money, a modest amount of money, you know, two, three, four million pounds, depending on what we think the pipeline is looking like for the tech transfer department at each of those universities. And it'll invest in either the sort of seed or the seed plus or a minus or a round of some of those companies and they're sort of these funds don't spin things out on their own but they help co-invest with other investors so they help sort of try and bring in a, a sort of syndicate of uh, hopefully relatively like-minded investors so we might co-invest with you know, other specialist funds at, at that point and park walks other funds may co-invest with our university funds as well at that stage and 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 yeah that, that's getting the, the company out on, on its on its path and and then yeah we'll see you know you normally have say 18 months of money for the company we've got various kpis and milestones that we're hoping the management team will achieve in, in that 18 month and, and then you know maybe after a year we start thinking about doing a series a or possibly following the company if it hasn't succeeded but generally again the universities tend to have a reasonably higher uh, success rate um, at the, certainly at this earlier stage because you, you'll you'll have had this sort of idea being um, sort of incubated within the university for a few years you'll, you'll have had a sort of hopefully a, you know a, a pretty intelligent uh, professor or team working on this idea it'll have been peer-reviewed you know, perhaps globally peer-reviewed and, and then you know, plus all the all the good things that the tech transfer department does on around the, the patent checks and freedoms to operate so, so you should uh, you know plus they've got sort of um you know sort of mckinsey type consultants in the in the tech transfer departments as well looking at uh, you know looking at global addressable markets and, and commerciality of the idea so certainly at the early stage i, th- I think universities tend to have a well, I mean, there are several stats out there showing that universities do have a higher or a lower failure rate yeah. in the first few years of their lives. Yeah, lots of moving parts already present, of course, there. Yeah. Um, now, this model, it seems really good. It also seems very replicable in the sense that you might be able to expand this outside of the UK quite easily, given you know the, the work that uh, some of the universities across Europe are doing already yeah. uh, in terms of tech transfer. So is, is that in your plans? Is that something you, you want to do? Yeah, I think my, my very long-term horizon would be. Um, you know, there, there, are, there are all sorts of places where I'd like to expand this to, but you know, at the moment, we're just trying to sort of succeed here at the moment. You know, the old expression, Rome wasn't built in a day. Uh, uh, you know, we're only 10 years in, but I, I think you know, our, our ideal goal would be to sort of prove that um, university spin-outs across different sectors. You know, so we'd like to be able to show that just university spin-outs in their own right as an asset class are good investments. And, and the, 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 then the actuaries can show that uh, you know, perhaps pension funds and, and insurance companies and the real sort of long-term capital should be starting to deploy a small proportion of its assets into this area to, to help sustain Growth, uh, you know, and 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 build the, the the successful companies that we all need in Europe to to you know for, for us to succeed economically in the future. Maybe just a, a very last uh, small question on that. Like, imagine you would go to Germany or France and you would talk to any of the universities to set up a model like this. Um, what would they need to have already in place for this to be successful on their side? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, my understanding is that certainly in Germany and France, you you have um, a lot more. I'm not quite sure how to describe it, but but you, you know, sort of semi sort of family controlled, um, medium medium to large size industrial conglomerates in various sectors, and quite often they have very close relationships with the universities already. So, so so I think you'll see you'll currently see quite a lot of interaction between them and. Um, the universities and these corporations whereas 
what we've sort of tried to do here is is I think a lot of the success here has been because of the uh, skills and, and efforts made by the tech transfer departments who really have made it a lot easier for investors to invest in spin-out companies. You know, the, the, when they first started, it was very complicated. You know, every single deal was negotiated. The price took forever to be decided. You know, the professors and founders were very worried about dilution. And it was sort of uncharted waters 20 years ago, whereas I think now they've demonstrated a, a, a good ecosystem where people can sort of see how it's worked for some of their colleagues in the past and believe and trust in the system. So, so it's a question of time, but the tech transfer departments, in my opinion, have been, have been key to this. And that's you know, partly why we run these funds with sort of some of the Golden Triangle universities, particularly um, because they tend to have uh, larger um, tech transfer departments uh, w- with all of those skill sets, w- w- which has really helped. So, you know, one of our sort of suggestions to government over the years has been to perhaps uh, try and put some uh, communal tech transfer departments in for some of the other universities. You know, you, you could have a sort of northern powerhouse uh, tech transfer department that works with, with with all of those universities rather than having to have so much individual resource because it's a it's a you know it is quite a complicated and time consuming business. For sure. Just a, a slightly different question. And this is, of course, a question we can't avoid in these times. Like, how has the coronavirus outbreak um, affected you as a company at Parkwalk, but also the amount, well, the very, very uh, lots of companies that you've invested in already? L- lots of them early stage, of course. Yeah. So, I mean, for, for us as Parkwalk, we've been sort of pretty, pretty fine. We've got, um, we're an FCA regulated firm, so we have to have disaster recovery processes in place. So, uh, everyone's working remotely and you know, we've got, uh, we're all obviously used to using Zoom and podcasts and so on and so forth. And we're all uh, have access very securely to our files and things. So, so there's been sort of no, no problems um, from a part walk point of view. And then at the portfolio level, it's, it's so diverse and, and varied. You, you know, we, we have got some companies that are actually benefiting sort of from the coronavirus because they are helping in, in various ways. You know, one of our early stage companies that we've just completed a seed funding round for about six months ago uh, was on the BBC News a couple of times as, as a possible as one of the companies that possibly may may come out with, with a vaccine for for the virus that they're using sort of AI basically to help reduce the amount of misses that you have to have when designing the drugs so uh, we've got so several companies sort of in that category that, that are potentially benefiting I mean obviously none of them are making any money that everyone's been careful not to be seen to be profiteering at the moment but it does mean that they are theoretically appear to be pretty attractive to new investors and, and so on so they should at least keep getting funded we've got several companies that are sort of relatively unaffected by it all you, you know certainly some of our software companies or, or perhaps uh, genomics companies are you, you know, again very working very well with a, a lot of their key staff working from home collectively collegiately so, so no problems there but we have obviously got a few companies that, that are having problems um, and to be brutally fair they're probably some of the, the, the ones that were weaker in our portfolio um, that possibly might have failed anyway but it might bring forward that uh, that failure m- maybe if they can't you know continue to raise money because we're normally a syndicate investor uh, as part walk so we, we, we do invest with other co-investors so I can't think of a case where we've funded a company sort of single-handedly uh, in the past so it, it tends to be sort of collegiate decisions on, on, on funding them. Right. Um, so I, I take it you're cautiously um, optimistic uh, still, but th- do you have any idea <laughs> and, you know, the long-term effects of this uh, going to be on the on the industry? Yeah, I, well, one hates to be too optimistic, but, but you know, one, one could hope that when we come out the other side, quite a few things in our society might change. And, you, you know, perhaps we will 
fund all of our respective health services a little bit better and have a bit of slack in the system because you know, I, can't, I can't see that this is going to be the only pandemic. You, you know, I mean, sort of black swans now seem to come very often. They're, they're becoming as common as white swans. So, uh, you know, I, I think, um, you know, we, we need to have slack in the system across all sorts of areas. And, and we need to be a little bit more innovative and future planning for things that, that are going to go wrong. And for, you, you, you know, ESG, I think is really important. You, you know, we, we've got to sort of hand on a, we can't keep handing a worse planet on to our descendants forever. Um, and and my, my belief is that sort of some of this deep science and deep tech that that is being created at various universities around the world will really help us all with, with some of these big problems that the world's going to have going forward. You know, I mean, we've got some amazing companies in you know, solar technology that, that are sort of breaking new efficiency, you know, hold the efficiency world record for a solar cell, um, you know, some, some fantastic stuff in uh, in fuel cells, uh, you know, all sorts of areas as well, of course, you know, healthcare and, you know, AI and quantum computing. I mean, you know, if we can get some quantum computing working, um, it'll solve some very big problems that, that mankind has at the moment, which will create huge efficiencies and save a lot of energy and in some areas and of course in, in life science it'll save a lot of lives yeah well i can only agree 100 with your sentiment and also hope that <laughs> you know this deep tech science-based technology will uh, help us get to the other side uh, relatively unscathed uh, we'll see about that uh, but thank you so much for your time and explaining a bit more how parkwalk uh, works i'll definitely keep an eye on uh, further developments uh, but thank you so much for your time today thanks robin really good to meet you thank you and this is it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed it. Uh, please help us spread the word. Tell a friend or colleague or family member about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Audio engineering for this podcast is done by Sound Pulse. That is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at podcast at tech.eu. I am going to talk to you next Monday, still filling in for Andrew Daigler. Until then, please enjoy your week and take care. Bye-bye.